All right. Well, we've essentially finished our series on the life of Abraham. And I'm debating what we will pursue as a series for afternoons in the future. In the meantime, I've had a couple of sermons that I've wanted to work through as one-offs. And this afternoon will be one of those. Turn in your passages of Scripture, please, or in your copies of the Scriptures, to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. Begin reading at verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Now, Isaiah 49 is primarily a messianic prophecy. We know this from the various references of God to his servant. We see this exalted servant declared as the Redeemer and the Savior whose salvation reaches to the ends of the earth. In the end, we see the kings and the rulers of the earth bowing down in worship to this now kingly servant. And as we read that prophecy, we certainly can't set aside that primary purpose to declare the coming Messiah. This is a messianic prophecy. Nevertheless, Isaiah the prophet declared this prophetic utterance with his voice. And there is a personal quality to what he says here. We also need to see, or or rather hear, this simultaneous reference to Isaiah the prophet of God. We see that in verses 3 and 4 particularly. Let me read that. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said... I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. You see, Isaiah is speaking not only of the Messiah with the Messiah's voice when he says, he said to me, but these words are also spoken from the perspective of Isaiah. When Isaiah says, he said to me. This is simultaneously a reference of Isaiah the man to his appointment by God as a prophet. And Isaiah then follows these words, the words I just read, with this statement. I've I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. This is a very humanly expression, is it not? It's not uncommon 
in the prophecies of Isaiah and others to hear this duality of voice, the voice of the prophet and the voice of God. In this case, we find a duality of reference in terms of expressions pertaining to both the human prophet Isaiah, sent to declare the word and the work of God, and expressions concerning the Messiah, the great prophet, the prophet, priest, and king who would one day come. This afternoon, in the time that we have together, I want to examine these verses from the perspective of the human prophet and his complaint in the prophecy recorded for us. So let's begin by looking at the problem, the problem that Isaiah presents to us. As soon as we read verses 3 and 4, we discover that apparently Isaiah had reached a very low moment in his career when he says uh, uh, to himself in verse 4, Surely I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing, for vanity. It seems that as the central, this central key prophet of God to Israel at this time, Isaiah felt that his efforts were apparently useless in calling Israel to repentance. Isaiah has been appointed, he's been equipped as a prophet. Note verses 2 and 3. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. The purpose of Isaiah's life and his appointment is made clear, at least foundationally with this statement. He is to be the spokesman of God. God has equipped him with an effective voice, or so we understand from the reference of his mouth, being a sharp sword carrying the word of the Lord, his life being like this polished arrow. In verse 6, we see the duality that I spoke of earlier when we read of the purpose of Isaiah's work and calling, presaging the life and the work of the Messiah, he prophetically declares, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. This is his purpose, the calling of God. But the reality is that in Isaiah's life, at this time, there is no historic redemption appearing in Israel. Blight did not seem even to be spreading to the Gentiles through Israel, nor through Isaiah. Isaiah apparently feels, as he looks out at what's being accomplished, what he's been called to, but what he's actually accomplishing, comparing these two things, and he feels it appears that his life's work is rather useless. There doesn't seem to be an immediate return on the investment of committing the strength and the energy of his life to this work. Now, materially speaking, his human reason and sense discern no positive outcome, no reward for all his labor. And it's this complaint of Isaiah found in verse 4 that I want us to look at specifically together. This sense of vanity in Christian labor is not isolated to Isaiah alone in this one point in life or in this great endeavor that he's been committed to by the uh, hand of God. The sense of vanity in Christian labor can come due to a variety of reasons, can come due to protracted periods of battle with sin. It can come with frustrating times of personal friction with other people. It can come at times of sickness and weakness, 
And it may come at the end of life, or it may come with the arrival of new life, such as the addition of a baby to the home. You see, our sense of labor is not a constant thing, nor is our energy and zeal. These things change at times. Tiredness grows. Encouragement can diminish. When that happens, our material nature seems to want to collapse and observe that none of our labor seems to diminish or reduce the need for additional labor. Or it doesn't seem to produce real positive gain in terms of a permanently better or more righteous outcome, which is apparently what Isaiah wanted to see. At times, the Christian life can feel this way, particularly during extended periods of great labor or during times of challenging trial and persecution, just as the prophets of God, like Isaiah, often experienced. It's not an uncommon experience for the Christian servant. We read of other prophets like Jonah and Elijah who reached similar low moments in their assessment of their own labor, the very purpose of their life. We see Jonah at one point finally saying, it's, I might as well just die. Let me just die. I'm done. There's no point to this. Even our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane at one point said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Now, having acknowledged that real experience of the Christian life from time to time, I want us to note that our Lord did not remain in such a condition. Likewise, here in Isaiah 49, the wise prophet finds a way, by the grace of God, in the words of God himself in this prophecy, to remind himself that his labor is not in vain, though at times he may feel discouraged and it might seem that his labor is in vain. At times, brethren, you may feel like Isaiah, especially as we consider the state of the church in our nation today. Uh, Spend some time talking to someone at work in a nominal Christian church. Try to have a meaningful conversation with them about Scripture in terms of the authority of Scripture, the certainty of Scripture, the uh, effect and sufficiency of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. I've struggled to talk to the common Christian about these things. And you, you may wonder as a Christian, is the church making any progress, even within its own ranks? I think Isaiah's in a similar place in this prophecy. A Christian can feel like this. He or she may feel like the psalmist when in Psalm 73, 13, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. The reality reality is, is that this perception that it's in vain is entirely wrong. And Isaiah proves it out in Isaiah 49. Now let's try to unpack, in the time, little bit of time we're going to take, let's try to unpack what Isaiah tells us is his remedy. Now to solve the problem of this mistaken perception of vanity, of wasted effort, Isaiah wisely reminds himself, he reminds himself of truths so easily forgotten in moments of extended labor and weariness. First, he reminds himself of the truth that God has appointed him to the work he engages in. In verses 1 through 3, he says, The Lord called me from the womb, 
From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant. It's no accident that all the labor of the people of God has come to them. It's not an accident when God brings a difficult chore to you. It's your labor because you are of the people of God. You are one of his appointed servants. Now recognizing this truth, the truth of God's decree active in the lives of his people, that's an encouragement in our labor. It reminds us that we are n- We are not keeping our heart clean and washing our hands in innocence through some random concourse of events or by our own design. Chaotic fate also does not rule the lives of God's people. Every moment of every labor is appointed to us by God. And we've been appointed, we ourselves have been appointed to that labor by the great God of the universe, God himself. This dignifies our labor in the Lord, brethren. It makes our labor of great import by default because it is the labor that the infinitely glorious God has appointed for us. The servant of the king is not just another servant. He or she is the servant of the king. That's something for us to keep in mind. Brethren, there is no Christian duty, no providentially appointed labor, which has not been divinely decreed for your performance. Now, I doubt that this can be understated. Isaiah describes the divine origin of his labor with this phrase, he who formed me from the womb to be his servants, his servant, formed from the womb to be his servant. That sounds significant. Whether or not the outcome of your labor is as you desire. God nevertheless has appointed the work to you from eternity. From the perspective of the divine decree, you're not simply spinning your wheels. You are never operating without purpose when operating in obedience to him. God is actually ruling in this world, in his kingdom, through your appointed labor. No matter what outcome you might like to see or experience, God is moving in this world through your labor. Now that's a very encouraging and dignifying honor, is it not? Who among us can raise our hand and say, yeah, I'm worthy of that, for God to work through me, for my labor, my paltry labor to be dignified by the God of the universe? Who among us can raise a hand and say that? But it's encouraging, is it not? Isn't that even better than the outcome we might prefer? What would you prefer? To have the outcome you want without the certainty of the sovereign reign of God behind the work of your life? Or that the certain, wise, and immaculate operation of divine providence is proceeding in your labor regardless of what your wisdom and your will might hope for in terms of outcome? I'll take the the latter. Surely it's clear that our peace and our hope is tied to the latter and not the former. Further, this recognition of the divine appointment of our labor helps us bear up under the weight and the wearer of it. 
It's labor appointed to us individually in consideration specifically of the gifts and the graces that God has given us and for the exercise of those gifts and graces that he's given to each one of us specifically. Isaiah was appropriately fitted by divine wisdom and providence, called and gifted for the work he was given. He wasn't just an arrow, brethren. He was a polished arrow. That indicates activity of God specific to Isaiah, a polished arrow, a sharp sword, not just a sword. Someone had spent time on that edge. He was in the hand of God for God to use, and God had prepared the laborer for the labor. The gifts were meant to be functional. What good would it have been for Isaiah to say, I've been made to be the prophet of God, yes, but since I have no assurance of success, I'll not put those abilities to work. And I'll not maintain that because I haven't seen success. That would have been foolish. We would say that would be arrogant or disobedient. How much worse than just the discouragement of unfulfilled expectation of success in prophetic ministry if he had never engaged or he had ceased to engage. You see, obedience... What we're saying really is that obedience to God is never conditional. It's important for us to remember that in times of weariness with this world, weariness with life, our obedience is not conditional. Obedience to Christ is never optional. I don't have the wicked luxury of telling myself, well, I'll press on in faithful, persevering obedience as long as I can be assured that the outcome of that obedience is encouraging, not too tough. Not too demanding. No, brethren, Isaiah must be the prophet of God. The prophet Jeremiah tried to stop once. He tried. He tried to give up. And in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, he tells us what happened. Let me read his words to you. If I say, I'll not mention him or speak any more in his name, I'm done with this. There's in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. So we see that it's not even an option for God's people when we grow weary in our labor for his kingdom. Giving up isn't on the table for us. Why? Because our chief end remains the same. Our chief end is to glorify God. And where the gifts and the graces are present, we're encouraged to bring them to bear for the glory of God. In Isaiah 49 and verse 3, which we read at the beginning, God says to Isaiah, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now that's certainly speaking of God's people. It's speaking also of Isaiah's work among God's people. What an encouragement to Isaiah to press on with his labor, knowing that God will be glorified by him personally as he engages in that labor. That God has gifted the prophet to display the excellency of God in his labor. Brethren, this thought is a wonderful remedy in times of tiredness or disillusionment in this world. No matter what the outcome may appear to be to us, Our labor is purposed by God to magnify the excellency of his glorious being. That's going to happen. God does not fail to get glory to himself. 
If he doesn't share it with someone else, he's not going to give it to them. Therefore, your sanctified labor is always purposeful. Always. It will always bring about a glorious outcome. No matter that Isaiah didn't see the repentance and the redemption of Israel in his day, he longed for that. He worked for that. He didn't see the repentance and redemption of Israel in his day. Nevertheless, God promises him, you are my servant in whom I will be glorified. We need to constantly remind ourselves that the great outcome of all our labor is God's glory. And we don't get to define how God is glorified, but we can be certain of it. He determines that according to his own wise and glorious holy counsel, he will be glorified by his people in our labor. The great hope and encouragement for us is that we're given the great and certain honor that in our sanctified Christian labor, we've been graciously dignified with having a part in that divine purpose. Our gifts and our graces, though they are the offerings of unprofitable servants, though they may seem weak and few, nevertheless, they accomplish the glory of God as God works in us. Now, what about if I have very few? Few to none. Difficult to locate in terms of gifts and graces. Well, where gifts and graces are lacking, we're encouraged to note that God has appointed our labor in his service to produce in us what is lacking. If you feel that your labors are too weak, your gifts and graces too few, Listen to what the prophet of God says in verses 5 and 6 here in our passage. He says, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserve of Israel. I'll make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You see, the strength and the sense of honor that was lacking in Isaiah as he labored over what he perceived to be a useless work or an endless work. That lack, that missing part of what he needed was supplied by God as he labored in the Lord. In other words, the labor itself was the providential condition which God had purposed to supply strength and honor that Isaiah rightly felt he lacked. God brought the labor to the man in order to reveal the lack and supply what was lacking in the process. Now this too is a wonderful promise of help for us as we labor, especially in times where the labor doesn't seem to be producing what we hope. Our labor is not in vain in the Lord simply because we feel the great vanity of our material struggle. That does, just because we feel the vanity of it doesn't make it so. Our labor's not in vain just because we seem to have so little power or ability in that labor. Rather, we're to understand that in the very experience of the weariness of our labor in the Lord, the Lord himself works in those circumstances to supply what's lacking. When I am weak, then I am strong. Through the seemingly pointless work, of this prophet's years of labor with Israel, with the various nations around her, the mistake was to suppose that just a little more human power, a little more, or a little more human wisdom could be applied to the situation. If that happened, then it would all come out all right. 
the desirable outcome would present at that point. If only Isaiah had enough to give. But the reality was that it was always and only always in the strength of the Lord that the prophet labored. And therefore, if Israel was to repent, if Israel was to be redeemed, and if the nations were to come as well as Isaiah hoped, then that too would also have to be due to the power of God and his power alone. This is what Isaiah is realizing. A great help to us in times of weariness, in those times when the strain of Christian perseverance grows, a great help is to remember that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's in vain in us. It's in vain in the flesh. It's in vain in the world, yes. But in the Lord, our labor cannot be in vain because it is the Lord's labor. If it's in my strength that I serve and I labor, then discouragement and weariness will certainly eventually bring us down, bring me down. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We can bank on that. But when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Remember that, brethren. Remember when your labor feels like it grows heavy, remember that it is God and God alone who supplies all our needs. That is the source of our strength, just as Isaiah teaches us. Now there's another encouragement here as we consider that as we think of our own weakness. And it's this irony that acknowledging and living in the reality of our own weakness is the key that unlocks our strength in the Lord. Now building on that thought, in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58, Paul says the following. Listen, I tell you, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What Paul is telling us is that attached to our appointed labor, we find God's purposeful reminder that we are material. We're made of dust creatures. Now, why do we need to be reminded of that? Doesn't that sort of seem antithetical to Paul building us up and making us encouraged? And No, quite the contrary. This is what we need to hear to be built up. We've already mentioned that we've been given this vision of our weakness, the experience of our own vanity, the experience of failure. We're given that even in our labor so that we flee to God for strength, right? But there's another reason. Paul is telling the Corinthians, that though, and he's telling those of us who listen to his words, that our sense of weariness and weakness and labor is evidence that God has a greater purpose for us. 
What is it evidence of? What is this greater purpose that my weakness is evidence of? That I'm intended to inherit something promised of God, something of salvation that transcends this weak and undependable flesh and this fallen world in which I now labor. I'm supposed to experience the weakness of the flesh. When you find that your labor is in vain in any particular effort, sometimes witnessing to a family member or offering good counsel to a brother or sister in Christ can feel like vanity. Uh, we've all had the experience of, of our wise words falling on deaf ears. It's frustrating. We may try to work through the process of years of raising our children, but they fall away in their latter years. Was all that labor wasted? We've seen that happen in various families. I've seen very diligent parents not receive the blessing of faithful children. Did, was their labor in vain? That's very discouraging. I've seen husbands and wives work with a spouse who's unsaved. They're saved. Their spouse is unsaved. That spouse never came to the knowledge of the gospel, at least to our knowledge. Was their labor in vain? See how very discouraging those moments can be? Why would God have them experience even years of that kind of discouragement? Well, there's a purpose in that that's for them. You are meant in that weakness, in the weakness of your own flesh, your own inability to accomplish what you desire, like the repentance of Israel for, I, for Isaiah. You are meant to recognize that God intends you to inherit something that transcends your own weak, undependable flesh and this fallen world in which you labor. Your weariness and that sense of vanity that sometimes attends your labor is appointed by God to make you hope for and long for an eternal state of immortal inheritance. A city that has foundations, a place where nothing unclean may enter. Our labor is therefore not in vain, no matter that we may never see the end we hope to accomplish in our labor. Our labor in the Lord as his servants in subjection to his rule and his reign through his word, that labor definitively produces a significant outcome. What? What outcome? As we wear out materially, we wear in spiritually. As the outer man perishes, the inner man is becoming stronger day by day in our labor in the Lord. And with that thought in mind, how can labor, our labor in Christ ever be in vain? The ultimate fulfillment of the experience of our salvation is ever nearing through our labor. Now Isaiah was meant to understand this. We know he was because in Isaiah 49, 7, we can tell that he heard the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now were I to approach this prophecy, or this portion of the prophecy, from a purely redemptive historical approach, only looking for the perspective of Christ we would potentially miss the glorious promise of these words to the weak, material, sinful person, Isaiah. In these words, God has promised that the discouraged 
retired prophet who's become abhorrent in the eyes of men because of his labor in the Lord. Even the weak, apparently ineffectual man, Isaiah, even Isaiah will become an object of honor in future moments of heavenly glory. Now to keep that thought in the redemptive historical realm, in the realm of the coming Messiah, We note that God will accomplish that honor, which will go to Isaiah. God will grant him his crown and reward because of the work of the coming one, Jesus Christ, whom Isaiah is heralding, who will one day redeem the man, who will redeem Isaiah in human history. That's going to happen. And for that reason, Isaiah's labor is far from vain. It's far from impotent. He's heralding the very one through whom his labor will reach an immeasurable, precious accomplishment. Isaiah's labor in the Lord is attached to the very value of his own soul and that soul being redeemed. And there's the final thought of encouragement for us that I want to leave in your minds. Our labor in the Lord is actually producing for us unimaginable rewards, which God has promised to us in eternity in heavenly places. Isaiah noted this truth early in verse 4, immediately after he airs his complaint about the apparent uselessness of his labor. It's clear that he's immediately beginning to work on the correction of his discouragement. Notice what he says. His complaint is again as follows. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. And his correction of himself is this, yet surely my right is with the Lord, my recompense with my God. Brethren, there's an honor and a glory that awaits us that we're told will be revealed in us, which is presently beyond our comprehension, but to which your present labor in the Lord is inextricably attached. There's a final outcome of equity and goodness and rightness that we'll live in and experience forever. No matter that Israel would not heed the prophet, No matter that he had become odious to his own people in service to God, surely there's a real and true outcome to appreciate when in the end Isaiah is rewarded by God. Now that's certainly not a pointless or a worthless outcome. Only a fool would not be willing to trade the potential material accomplishment of a lifetime, a human lifetime, for an eternally enjoyed divine reward. In 2 John 1.8, the Apostle John tells us, quote, Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. John is simply faithfully reminding us of what Isaiah reminded himself, that what we work for now in the Lord, in service to him, to that labor God has graciously attached a reward. Which reward will certainly come to us to enjoy in a future heavenly glory? Now that thought should help us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. God will never be in your debt. He will not allow himself to be in your debt. What honor and fulfillment we lack now in our labor in the Lord, God in the riches of his grace will super abundantly supply in future joys of eternity which await you. You may and should 
and must always bank on that. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We'll close there.